Welcome to our special episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this special episode and all our episodes uh, represent relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guests, plural, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor, we have infectious disease and public health specialist, Dr. Paul Carson. And for the first time on our show, we welcome Dr. Becca Backey, a pediatrician. Paul and Becca are going to update us on COVID in the pediatric population. We are recording this on the Tuesday evening before Thanksgiving. Chris, why do you think this is important to cover now? Well, I would guess that virtually every one of our listeners either has kids or knows someone that does. I mean, this this strikes really at such a central place uh, with all of us that have now been through this pandemic. We're trying to understand what's best for our kids, what's best for those around our kids. We're headed into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Our kids are very likely this year, especially to be around their usually elderly relatives, grandparents and grandparents who may be uniquely vulnerable, who may or may not be vaccinated. And the kid question, as it were, um, is really important. You know, just recently, one of my younger kids uh, was ill, not with COVID, thanks be to God, but ill. uh, And he couldn't go back to school until he proves that he's COVID negative, but he really just had a bad cold. And then we said, but he's fully vaccinated. They said, well, it doesn't matter. We've got to test him to make sure he doesn't have COVID. And we're thinking, gosh, the kid thing is more confusing than the adult thing. Oh, my goodness. I think we all just want guidance. And I know that's what our hosts want to help us and help our listeners with uh, as we walk into this latest phase of the pandemic. Uh, absolutely. We want answers. And especially if we have kids under 12 now, we want to know, you know, what are the pros and cons for being vaccinated? What is the potential harm of the disease of COVID? What do we know now as we're recording on November 23rd, 2021? And having had previous conversations and email exchanges with our guests, I know that they are primed to give us the best information available. Now, all of you, like Chris and I, can go onto the CDC website and see the data And, uh, you know, we're up on our hospitalizations about three and a half times what it was at the lowest point uh, this last July. And while we've seen a drop from the peak of the Delta variant, we seem to be leveling off or slowly rising again for the first time in two and a half to three months. But we're still really down about one third of where we were at January's peak for hospitalizations. And a thing to point out, uh, one among many, is a lot of this discussion is about strategically avoiding overwhelming healthcare systems. Uh, and there are certainly places in the country where at this very moment, there are no open hospital beds because of COVID illness. Um, certainly that urgency may not be reflected in the death rate, which is a pretty gross assessment of how things are going. But we've got to remember from a solidarity perspective that the bed someone may need because their teenager was maybe in a car accident, that bed may be full of a COVID patient. If there's something we could do, that is to say vaccination in most cases, is if there's something we could do to keep that bed open, we might help that child uh, in a car accident. And, you know, I would take this time to say sort of as a, as a plead to our listeners and anyone they may share our podcast with, try to let go of what might be the political anger that, that many of us feel at, at many of our institutions. You know, maybe you don't like some of the things that the politicians have said or not said or reverse themselves on. Let's try to focus on the data and on the statistics and on our health and the health of those around us. I'm right there with you. Some of those things make me very angry as well. But as our guest will remind us tonight, we're talking about, um, in good faith, the best data that we can get our, our hands on. Amen to that, Chris. We're all after what is the best for the health of our kids and those of other children uh, so that they can be all God made them to be. And before we go to our break so we can have maximal time with our guests, 
we have our medical trivia question of the day. And the category is cool drug names. And I send kudos out to the northwestern part of the U.S. to Dr. Paul Cieslak, our friend there, who brought this to my attention. The question is this. The first new antiviral for COVID-19, specifically for SARS-CoV-2, has demonstrated effectiveness. And it's called malnupirinavir. And the root of it, the first two syllables, come from the word Molnir, M-J-O-L-N-I-R. What is the pop culture origin of the name of this drug? It's pretty darn cool. That's the name of the category, but you got to wait till the end of the show for the answer here on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back momentarily with our guests, Dr. Paul Carson and Becca Backey on COVID and kids. And welcome back to our interview when we have two experts who are going to help us unpack what we know about COVID in kids. Dr. Paul Carson, well known to the show. And for the first time, Dr. Dr. Becca Baki. She's a pediatrician in Fargo, North Dakota, member of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Catholic Medical Association, and importantly, wife of Andy and mother of four children ages five to 11. Becca, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hey, thanks for having me. So first of all, how do you think is the best way to frame what we're going to try to do here? Becca, what would you say to that? Well, um, we want to take the best care of our kids that we can, um, and we want to get through this pandemic causing the least damage that we can. So that means preventing our kids from hospitalization and death and illness. Um, And that also means protecting the people that kids love, their parents and their grandparents and their teachers and their community members. That's a wonderful, uh, I think, way to begin this. So what do we know about COVID in kids its severity and frequency compared to adults? Fortunately, I mean, much fortunately, it's a lot less severe in kids than adults. We know that, you know, a good majority of kids are asymptomatic, but you do get children that can become, you know, very, very sick. We've had about 600 total pediatric deaths in our country and hospitalization wise, somewhere around 25,000. And that's only in 23 states that report that. So it's probably, you know, possibly even double that. You know, they can have a lot of the same side effects that adults do as far as pneumonia and respiratory failure, ending up on a ventilator. And then kids have kind of an interesting sequelae to infection called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, which is something that doesn't occur when they actually have COVID, but usually two to four weeks later, which is something also that can make them very ill and end up in the ICU um, and can be fatal. So there's a lot of things to worry about when you're talking about COVID in kids. But Becca, let me ask you to help our listeners for perspective. And I've heard this thrown around occasionally. Let's do a regular old flu because we're headed now into the flu season mm-hmm. compared to COVID. And remember, listeners, we're talking about kids from five to 11. The word kids could have a lot of different definitions. We're talking about ages five to 11. But Becca, as a pediatrician, help us understand in that age group, uh, COVID versus regular old flu that we're so accustomed to. Right, right. So, you know, flu seasons, as we know, vary. Some are more severe and some are uh, much less severe. But, you know, for kids in general, depending on the year, maybe 7,000 to 26,000 hospitalizations per year from influenza. Um, And like I said, from 23 states, we've had about 25,000 hospitalizations Mm. from COVID. So it's quite a bit more hospitalizations that you see from COVID than um, from influenza. Death-wise for flu, again, depending on the year, somewhere between like 37 and 200 deaths per year. And again, COVID, we've had, you know, about 600. So COVID is actually quite a bit more severe um, for kids than flu. And, and I would mention that we recommend influenza vaccination for kids every year um, for uh, kids ages six and up to prevent those rare events and also to prevent them from spreading influenza to community members. That's really helpful. What do we know about the risk of children spreading COVID to the adults around them, either in their home or in their schools? Yeah, I think that is a good question. I think initially in the pandemic, there was kind of this thought that kids aren't big spreaders. You know, we weren't seeing them get as sick. We weren't seeing them spread. And that's kind of changed. I mean, especially with the Delta variant and stuff, we know that kids spread this illness. They can spread it to their family members. I've seen, you know, uh, many kids bring it home and spread it to vulnerable parents and grandparents. Um, So they're probably not as big spreaders of COVID as they are of influenza, um, but they definitely play a part. 
I remember in the very early days of the pandemic, it's hard to think back that far, there, there, was, <laughs> there was this fear that kids were going to be these really super spreading little machines yep. uh, because they often are, aren't they? <laughs> but right. it, it turned out they weren't. And then that now I think we're learning to, to your comments. No, they're not the super spreader little incubators we thought, but yet they do have the capacity and do spread uh, the infection. Uh, if I can just add a little bit to that too, is, you know, initially we thought they were less likely to spread right. and it really was a function of that they were much less symptomatic. So they weren't being tested as often and right. it wasn't being, you know, found. Now we've got better data and, and it basically looks like kids reflect what's going on in the community. Um, you know, what you see in the schools is kind of what you see in the community and they carry about the same amount of virus as adults do. Mm. And when they bring it into the home, they're about as likely to spread it to other people in the home as uh, adult members in the home. So they're, they're much closer to being uh, the same on degree of spread, but much less likely to have severe disease. It's interesting that you would say that. I, it seems like the only time any of my kids were ever interested in physical affection with me is when they were sick. Um, <laughs> for sure. And then I, I could rest assured they would all want to hug me and sit on my lap for hours when they were sick. Um, so if they're not spreading any more than adults, that's actually, that seems pretty promising. So on October 26th, an FDA vaccine advisory committee approved the emergency youth use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. I voted 17 to 0 with one abstention. So what was the data they were looking at to support this move? Yeah, great question. I mean, that's big news in the pediatric world. So um, they did the study. I mean, of course, we know like in our country, over 200 million people have gotten this vaccine already, ages 12 and up. So this was a study just for five to 11 year olds. Um, they initially had about 2,300 participants, 2,000 of them got a vaccine, um, or two thirds, excuse me, of them got a vaccine, the rest got a placebo. And then later on, they added about 2,300 more kids in the sort of safety expansion group, just to make sure that they weren't missing any major adverse effects. And they, they sort of measured their response to the vaccine in a couple different ways. One was looking at their antibody response, um, you know, so drawing their blood, looking at how many antibodies they made against the virus and comparing that to the antibody response that you see in older adolescents and young adults. Um, so they looked at that and then they also um, did look at how many cases they had. Um, and in the study, there were 16 cases in the placebo group and three cases in the vaccine group, uh, which comes out to be about 90% efficacy. Um, they also were able to show that the vaccine worked against the Delta variant, which is a big concern of kids because, you know, we've definitely been seeing a lot more kids get hospitalized and super sick with this Delta variant. Now, Becca, break down for our listeners when you say 90% efficacy, break down what that actually means for the average child and parent. I'm going to hand that one over to Paul. I think that's his, <laughs> I think that's his area of expertise. Yeah. So what that sometimes that's a confusing term. We talk about vaccine efficacy, which comes from trial data. And so it basically means that if you have an, an equal sized group of vaccinated people and an equal sized group of unvaccinated people, those vaccinated people will have 90 percent less infection in their infections in their group compared to the unvaccinated. Mm. Um, so it's it, that's a you know major, major drop in risk. Um, it remains to be seen how long that protection will be at that level because, I mean, we were at that 90, 95% level with adults and it's, it's fallen substantially since then. So, Paul, that really means for every child in the vaccine group who got it, about 10 in the placebo group would get it. Correct. Uh, get, get COVID. Correct. Yes, correct. That's correct. So what are the presumed benefits then? Okay, they, they don't get a disease that is mostly pretty mild in that age group. What, what are the benefits? I, I'm a parent. I've got kids in this age group. Why would I want to give them the vaccine? Um, so, oh, you go ahead, Becca. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you're right. I mean, most kids do well, but some kids don't. And you don't really have a good way to know which kids are going to end up in the hospital, which kids are going to die. We know that almost half of kids that are hospitalized with this don't have any underlying conditions. So you can't really look at your child and say, okay, my kid's going to be totally fine with COVID. I mean, you know, you can take a chance, but I don't think any of us really like to do that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the people that we love most in this world, which is our children. So they're less likely to get in the hospital. They're less likely to die. 
Um, and they're less likely, again, to spread it to people, you know, that they know and love. Um, like pediatrics had an interesting study a few weeks ago that showed that 130,000 kids in our country have lost a primary or secondary caregiver during the pandemic. So that's a lot of orphans. That's a lot of trauma that these children, you know, have to deal with for the rest of their lives. Um, and we know that kids that, you know, have the loss of a parent or a grandparent early in life, you know, do, do deal with mental health, substance abuse, physical health issues at a higher rate than other kids later on in life. So it affects them, you know, in, in more ways than just getting sick, but it also protects them from that too. You know, it, it seems like it's worth interjecting. I've heard a lot of talking heads, as we all have on this topic, and and they're often quoting death rates, and and they'll use the the low probability of a child five to eleven years dying from mm-hmm. COVID as an argument against vaccinating those kids. But that's a very gross statistic to use. I mean, that's great that they're not very likely to die. But it fails, I think, to take into account that they they are likely to become sick, to become very sick, to become hospitalized. Right. And that's before we even think about they may infect their parents and grandparents and great grandparents. I mean, like, what do we want for our kids? We want more for them just to not die from this infectious disease, right? I mean, I think we all have higher hopes for our children. We don't want them. I mean, even you can look at things like they're missing school, they're missing sports, they're missing birthday parties. I mean, this pandemic has had, you know, a really impressive um, effect on kids, you know, whether you count them like getting actually ill or not. And so I think, um, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, de- you know, you know, not dying is a pretty low bar. And, and I think we I think we want to, you know, we, we expect more. So we want to talk about risks of the vaccine versus risks of COVID in five to 11 year olds. Let's start with what are the known risks in five to 11 year olds and maybe even 12 to 17 year olds of receiving the mRNA vaccines? Yep. Great question. So in the study, and I think Paul will probably want to add on to this because I know some of this is his favorite topics, but in the study, you know, the main side effects, just your typical sort of vaccine side effects, fatigue, headache, muscle pain, some fevers that typically, you know, self-resolved in a day or two. If you look at the vaccine study, it's kind of interesting because some of the serious adverse effects that they listed, um, one was one of the kids swallowed a penny. Um, which obviously has nothing to do with the vaccine. But, you know, when you're looking at, at serious adverse events after vaccine, they do look at everything. One of the other kids broke an arm. Um, so, again, they, you know, one of the big concerns for pediatricians and parents and public health people is the concern about myocarditis, which is heart inflammation, um, which you do see uh, more in adolescent boys. It's kind of especially prominent in like the 16 to 29 year olds um, after vaccine. They did not see that um, in this study. Um, the study, you know, to be fair, wasn't really big enough to show that effect. So, uh, and, and there's a few reasons why we think that's probably less likely to happen in this age group. One is that it's a lower dose. You know, we're giving it at, at a third of the dose as we are in older people. Another is that we think that there's definitely a hormonal component to this. I mean, you're seeing myocarditis most often in the 16 to 29 year old boys who almost all of them are going to be post pubescent. There's probably some testosterone, you know, contributing uh, factor to that because you really don't see that in the same age in young women. And in myocarditis in general, you can get myocarditis from a lot of different places that not just vaccines, you can get it from different viruses and stuff. You just don't see it as much in five to 11 year olds at baseline. So do we know? No, we don't know. But we have a lot of good reason to think that we're not going to see that serious side effect, at least at the same rate in five to 11 year olds. You know, it seems like we have something to add. I don't know. That seems like a good time to pause a minute and talk about this database, because I know I've fielded a lot of questions from a lot of really concerned patients about the VAERS database. Um, And and Paul, you're our expert. Maybe you could describe what that is and maybe more importantly, what that is not. Right. Yeah. So it, um, the VAERS database, which stands for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, is one of uh, a number of different databases and systems we have to monitor vaccine safety. So the, the first layer of vaccine safety is doing the FDA approval uh, trials, the phase one, phase two, phase three. That's what we just saw done in the five to 11 year old age group. But those are usually powered to be able to find things that are maybe one out of a thousand vaccine doses, one out of 10,000 maybe vaccine doses. Um, if we're going to find rarer things than that, we need other systems. So first of all, these are kind of fishing expeditions for rarer events. Um, 
So the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is one where anybody and everybody can file a report of any bad thing they think happened after a vaccine. Now, physicians and nurses and pharmacists are obliged uh, to report serious adverse events, so hospitalizations and deaths. Um, uh, that, that's incumbent on us to report all of those. <clears throat> but, um, but people can report anything, and they do report anything. And there's some really crazy reports in there if you kind of go look. <laughs> and the CDC makes it publicly available so people can search it. And sometimes they don't know how to use the search engine quite right, and so they get, get some things goofed up there. But it's a database that we kind of say in public health, we love it and we hate it. Uh, and we, we love it because it is an early warning system to identify signals or patterns um, to which we then say, could there be an association here with this problem? We need to go study that with a better type of study that has a control group, fundamental principle of the scientific method, a control group. The VAERS database has no control group. It has no denominator. It's just trying to find any early warning or early signals to help us uh, look in a better way. That's that's a great description. I'm, and I think in my own specialty in pregnancy, uh, probably like you, I was bombarded with questions about miscarriage. Uh, yeah. And of course, the problem is many, many women miscarry in the first trimester. Yeah, absolutely. And to try to figure out if they're more likely to miscarry after having received the vaccine is actually a lot of work. And it takes a lot of really brainiac people like you, Paul, to crunch those numbers and do the statistical manipulations to figure out if it's more than just the usual expected number. And the VAERS system is not designed to do that. Not at all. It, it's yeah. like you say, it's just designed to be kind of a gross repository of nonspecific data, yeah. but it is very oftenly uh, misquoted and misused. So let, let me give you just two little uh, fine points on that. <clears throat> so one is that it, when you take a look at any typical day in America, about 8,000 people will die Almost 5,000 people have a new diagnosis of cancer. You'll have over 2,000 strokes, over 2,000 heart attacks, and over 2,500 blood clots every day in America, okay? We vaccinated 220, almost 225 million people in a matter of a few months. It's guaranteed somebody had a heart attack, a stroke, a blood clot, a death after a vaccine. It's guaranteed, and it may be completely unrelated. So as I say, when I talk about this, we have to know the difference between from a vaccine versus after a vaccine. And the only way you can get it, whether or not it's from, is to compare it with a control group. And now we're getting some really big studies rolling in with millions of study subjects showing they're incredibly safe, at least in adults. Uh, we, we've got big data now on that. Why don't we finish up two topics we started. Paul, you just mentioned, and Chris, early miscarriage. What do we know about fertility, COVID, or COVID vaccines? You want to take that back or you want me to start? I, I'm happy to, to take it. I think there's other experts on here too, Damn. but um, <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect your fertility. Um, you know, this was a rumor that was started by this Michael Yeadon um, who used to work at Pfizer. I think he retired in something like 2011. Um, and, you know, before he came up with this infertility rumor, he came up with some other interesting things saying COVID was overblown. It was essentially over. I mean, this is like a year and a half ago. So, I mean, we know that we know that, uh, you know, the facts haven't been on his side for other things. Um, but he basically kind of postulated the spike protein, which is what they use, you know, in the vaccine is similar to the syncytion protein, which is in the placenta. He thought the immune system could get confused. And instead of uh, just making antibodies against the spike protein, it would also make antibodies against the placenta and cause infertility. Um, so that's wrong for a lot of reasons. The spike protein and, and the syncytion protein are not that similar. Um, it doesn't make sense. If that made sense, then people that make antibodies against natural virus would also have trouble with in infertility. Um, and, and there's no evidence of that. We're not seeing that at all. But, but I think I love the way that you say that because, you know, what he was doing now, we don't know what his motivations are, but what he was doing was actually the scientific method. He had an idea. He had an hypothesis. Now, it turns out the data has not supported that hypothesis. But in the craziness of this pandemic, hypotheses have become sort of findings. Uh, when in reality, what I like to say to patients now is there is no credible evidence in peer-reviewed, carefully done studies that the vaccine increases the miscarriage rate above the natural rate. 
and, and that's all that we have to go on is good peer-reviewed quality data. Not the same thing as opinion, not the same thing as hypotheses, but that's what we've got. The other loose end we need to tie up before we go to our break is the myocarditis data in vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Paul, you're an expert on this. Plus, we are posting in our show notes some awesome visuals that Paul has put together. Paul, would you summarize that for us? Yeah, sure. So um, I think we first have to be fair and say we don't really know what the myocarditis risk is in that 5 to 11-year-old age group, that most recently approved age group. But we've got a lot of good data now um, from pretty much uh, everyone else, 12 and above. And so there's a couple of different sources for this data. So one is that VAERS database. And here they actually attempted to try and make a rate. But I think we, you have to have big caution about that because it's not it, it's not a true denominator. It's it's how many people reported into this passive system. But here's what we what we know from there. And then I'll give you what I think is probably a little better data. So from that original VAERS database, it looks like there's higher rates of this heart inflammation or myocarditis in that um, 12 to 24-year-old to males, especially 16 to 24-year-old males, especially 16 to 24. So um, why males? Why there? We don't know. That could just kind of speculate it. And a lot of people have been speculating that looks like there's something about testosterone or post-puberty, you know, testosterone that puts a risk. But let's let's break it down a little bit further. Israel's given us some really good data, and we've got some data from other sources in the U.S. now. It looks like it might even be higher than that in that age group. Might be as high as about 125 cases per million doses given. Most of those are after the second dose. So 125 per million. How does that compare to a 16 to 24-year-old's baseline risk of myocarditis from like viruses? Because that's the other way we get myocarditis. It's about the same. So an average 16 to 24 year old kind of chugging along over the course of a year has about 125 or 130 chances out of a million of developing viral myocarditis. So you add that on to what their baseline risk is. Now let's look at that same age group, same sex, males, highest risk group of all, 16 to 24 year old males. What's their risk of getting myocarditis from COVID? We've got some really good data on that now. Drum roll, please. Um, 980 cases per million. It's about yeah. six to seven fold higher risk, maybe more um, compared to uh, the risk from the vaccine. And what I, what I try and tell people is this is a math problem. It's not a political problem. It's not an emotion problem. It's not my gut feeling problem. It's, it's a math problem. And uh, the math is overwhelmingly not in favor of taking your chances with the virus and overwhelmingly in favor of taking your chances with the vaccine. On this issue alone, this doesn't count long COVID. It doesn't count your risk of death. It doesn't count your risk of COVID pneumonia. So in that highest risk group, the, the risks from the virus far outweigh this. And I think, I think you're, over time here, we are all going to either get vaccinated or get the virus. So you, you take your pick on these numbers. And that's a great way to finish this first segment of the interview. We'll be back with more wisdom from Paul and Becca after the break on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and let's continue this discussion because it's such an important one about risk to our children ages 5, 11 of the vaccine. We've talked about myocarditis. I think that we've, we've done a good job of explaining that the greatest risk of myocarditis is to the person who receives the, the infection, not the one who receives the vaccine. But what other risk are there to our children of receiving the vaccine? Um, so we can expect, I think, uh, the, first, I think we have to acknowledge that the 5 to 11-year-old trial data is not big enough to find those rare side effects yet. So we are going to rely, need to rely on what we call the post-authorization or post-licensure. This isn't licensed yet. So post-authorization data systems that we have to track this thing. And there's, there's a number of them, and, and we will get data, um, more more data. But I think people are having to make a prudential judgment about the immediate risk of COVID in their child's life now. Um, and numbers are going up in kids, 32% increase this last week over the prior week uh, in COVID cases in children. You know, a couple thousand school outbreaks over the last uh, few months. So they, we have to make a prudential judgment now. <clears throat> but um, I, I, we, aren't, we don't know yet about those rarer risks. I think we can... We can extrapolate, as Becca talked about earlier, from the 12 to 17-year-olds looking pretty safe there, the myocarditis being the biggest risk, which we already know, and some reasons to think 
that might be less in five to 11 year olds because of this, you know, puberty testosterone link. Anaphylaxis, five per million. I would expect it to be the same in kids, I presume, but we, we don't really have that data yet. But the thing that people, I hear a lot of people say is, well, you just haven't studied it long enough. We don't know about the long-term risks. I mean, what's going to happen a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now? And I think, first of all, uh, people have to understand, like, every vaccine you've ever received and every drug you've taken doesn't meet that kind of a bar of, of formal studies five or 10 or 20 years out. I mean, those may come later after they've been widespread use in circulation for a long time. But we have, we do know from other vaccines, you know, that have been around a long time that we just don't see any serious adverse events, typically beyond six weeks after the vaccine. In all licensed U.S. vaccine history, there's not been any identified serious adverse events after six weeks. And it makes sense because they cause their side effects either from the components of the vaccine themselves, which are usually out of you within a few days, or the immune response, you know, doing something it wasn't supposed to do. And the immune response typically peaks around four, five, six weeks, and then it fades away. Um, it, it, it decreases. You, you wouldn't expect there to be something popping up that you didn't see in that first six weeks. What would you say to people who say to me, Paul, but these mRNA vaccines have never been used before? Yep. yep. So just recognize when, um, when the virus gets in you, it's putting mRNA in you that codes and does, makes a spike protein and makes all the rest of the parts of the virus too. So you're going to take spike protein MRI, mRNA either through the vaccine or through a virus. You're, you're going to get it one way or another. I'd rather take my uh, mRNA that gets into my cells that doesn't have all the other bad stuff that the virus has. Becca, M-I-S-C, what do we need to know about that? Yes, uh, good question. So I mentioned this earlier, but it uh, stands for multi- system inflammatory syndrome in children. And it's one of these things that we kind of found out, I don't know, last spring, all of a sudden these kids started showing up in the hospitals, super sick with something similar to um, a different similar disease called Kawasaki disease. And all the pediatricians were following this really closely. So basically, um, MISC in kids, uh, kids have fever. They have, there's certain labs that you would draw that show evidence of high levels of inflammation in their body. And these kids are always really sick. Like these kids basically to be diagnosed, you have to end up in the in the hospital and two thirds of them are going to be in the ICU. You have uh, involvement from multiple organ systems. Usually the heart is a big one that's really involved um, for MISC. Um, also, you know, commonly they have GI symptoms like vomiting, diarrhea, things like that. So this is a syndrome that happens uh, about two to four weeks after COVID infection. Some kids show up in the hospital not even knowing they had COVID. So th this isn't something that kids who got very ill from COVID then get sick again. This is something that you commonly see in kids who are very minimally or even asymptomatic from COVID infection and then show up about a month later super sick. So there's been over 5,000 cases in our country and about 1% to 2% of those kids die. Um, it's most common in actually the age that we're now vaccinating. So kids between seven and 10 um, are most commonly affected. And most of these kids are previously healthy, like three fourths of them have uh, no underlying conditions. So why is this? I think we're still figuring that out. They think there's it's some sort of it doesn't have to do with the acute infection, but probably some post infectious phenomenon related to antibodies, you know, messing with your body causing this disease. Um, it's very, very scary disease. I think if you ask most pediatricians, what are they most afraid of if their kids are getting uh, COVID, it's probably going to be MISC because these kids get super, super sick. But just to clarify for listeners who may be tuning in, MISC is a complication of the infection, not of the vaccination. A hundred percent. That's correct. Yes. Well, earlier on, we were talking about uh, miscarriages and I understand there's some other data out there on fertility and pregnancy. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning um, two uh, ongoing, two two studies. One ongoing, one uh, recently reported, that really I think, in my mind, lay this pr pretty well to rest. First of all, we're just not not seeing anything to suggest it. But CDC has a, 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 a system with the V Safe. Some of you may have signed up for that after you got your vaccine, and you can put in there if you're pregnant. And they've got about 174,000 pregnant women that have you know, registered, I got the vaccine and was pregnant. <clears throat> and, um, and then they track in VSafe, whether they've had any 
problems or complications, and there's nothing kind of popping out as a signal there. But the CDC then goes and asks a number of them, can, can we do a deeper dive on how your pregnancy outcomes were? And they've tracked 5,500 uh, women in um, their more in-depth registry. And again, no, as, as Chris mentioned earlier, no increased signals of miscarriages, premature delivery, um, stillbirths, any of those kinds of uh, problems, all looking about the same as what you see in the baseline. But the other interesting uh, study that was just presented in a national meeting was a look at women who attend a fertility clinic. So they've already have, are struggling with infertility and, and are trying to, trying to get pregnant and getting various treatments to get pregnant. And they looked at women who got the vaccine and compared them to those who didn't get the vaccine and how many of them were able to achieve pregnancy with the fertility treatments and how many ultimately lost their pregnancies. And it was exactly the same. About uh, 75% were able to achieve pregnancy and about 20%, you know, in both groups lost their pregnancy, which is about what you see kind of in baseline for, um, first trimester spontaneous abortions. So there's just no differences between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in this, you know, more precarious group that are, are already struggling with fertility issues. And Paul, I think, uh, Right. Following that, it's important to point out that there is very good and convincing data to support that pregnant women who become infected with a virus, particularly in the third trimester, can become very, very ill. Not unlike with influenza, pregnant women are much more likely to be hospitalized. But if they're that ill and become hospitalized with COVID, they're much more likely to end up in the intensive care unit and very, very sick. And uh, that's not opinion. That's not conjecture. You know, that's real data that's that's well supported. Correct. Yeah. About, it increases their risk of landing in the ICU on a ventilator by about threefold. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> also, there's data that it, it looks like it increases their chance of premature labor. Mm, um, right. And, and so those are problems that, that can be avoided with vaccination. And I would add, just from the pediatrician standpoint, that sick moms often equals sick babies. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you want to avoid premature delivery as much as you can because babies that are born too early because their moms are, you know, in the ICU on a ventilator and the baby needs to be to be born, you know, also do face lifelong um, health outcomes. Yeah, I can just tell you, listeners, as an OBGYN, delivering your baby intubated in the ICU is not the birth experience you signed up for. Oh, my. <laughs> not, uh, not something we would wish on anyone. Well, maybe we can move on and talk a little bit about the immunity that happens from COVID-19 infection. So, you know, really there are three ways our children or adults could become immune. They could get the disease, that's natural immunity. They could get the vaccine or they could get both. So if my child, uh, my five to 11 year old has had COVID, should I still go get them vaccinated? Is that better for them uh, than their natural immunity? So I I think that's a fair question. Uh, I have a lot of people asking, um, and, and, and looking, you know, up on the internet about studies that kind of show prior infection may have similar similar levels of pr- protection against subsequent infection as a vaccine. The truth of the matter is, though, that, that you can get <clears throat> breakthrough infections after a vaccine, and you can get secondary infections after prior infection. In adult, we have data on adults. So to answer your immediate question, we don't know about 5 to 11-year-olds, but we have a fair amount of data now in 12 and up. And uh, breakthrough infections are definitely occurring after vaccination, but they also are occurring after natural infection. So I I actually put them kind of in a similar bucket. But here's what we do know for sure is that people who had prior infection and even get one dose of the vaccine have this sort of elite level uh, of antibodies that they have the most antibodies of any group. And you can show that um, quite interestingly, they're more, those antibodies after, after even a dose of vaccination are more likely to neutralize some of the variants that are popping up. So uh, they're probably going to be more likely to be protected against the next variant that comes along. Now, is it fair to say, Paul, that yeah, if I'm, uh, say, have natural immunity and then I get sick, I'm not likely to get as sick. But if I have natural immunity and the vaccine and I have a breakthrough infection, I'm, I'm very less likely to get very sick. Yeah. So- Yes, you're exactly right. And and so people with breakthrough infections after vaccination and people with 
a breakthrough infection, if you will, after prior infection can land in the hospital. They're less likely that much less likely than people who get a first time infection, mm. but they can land in the hospital. But that prior infected person who gets even one dose of the vaccine cuts that risk by another half. Wow. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. There's another topic that you brought to my attention that I've read about elsewhere is that there are some similarities between this situation and that of rubella and the rubella vaccine. Uh, tell our audience about this. Um, you want to start with that, Becca, or you want yeah, me to? Yeah, yeah, I can certainly talk about rubella. So rubella um, is a viral illness. So rubella is the R in the MMR vaccine, you know, for people who aren't familiar. Um, and what rubella illness is for kids is a pretty mild illness. In fact, like almost half of them have no symptoms. So similar to COVID, you might not even know they have them. If they do have symptoms, it's fever, rash, sore throat, maybe some pink eyes, pretty mild stuff for kids. And they don't tend to get super sick or they don't get super sick. but If a pregnant woman uh, contracts rubella in the first three months of pregnancy, there's a 90% chance that her unborn baby will either die or have a severe disability. And and this disability is, is quite severe. It's called congenital rubella syndrome. Babies are deaf, blind, have heart defects, um, permanent brain damage. And then there's a very specific kind of blueberry muffin rash that's on all of the pediatric board questions. Um, so it's it's a very, very uh, severe syndrome. And, you know, just like to give an idea, there was a bad rubella outbreak back in the mid 60s and 64 and 65. They estimated that there was like maybe 12 million cases of rubella um, that caused 11,000 miscarriages and stillbirths. So um, 11,000 dead babies. Um, Um, And then 20,000 babies that, you know, did uh, survive to birth, many of them actually died shortly after birth or had lifelong disabilities. So this is a very, very serious illness if a pregnant woman contracts it during pregnancy, but it's not very serious for really anybody else. Um, And so when they came up with the rubella vaccination, you know, countries kind of like had two choices. Okay, should we just vaccinate like adolescent and adult women, you know, to prevent them from getting it during pregnancy? Or should we... um, vaccinate everybody. Um, And they found that the only thing that really worked was to vaccinate everybody. It didn't work just to vaccinate the adolescents, you know, and the adult women, they were still getting cases, babies were still, you know, either dying or um, being born with this severe disability. But in the places like in the United States, you know, uh, rubella uh, vaccination, MMR vaccination is, you know, required for school entry and things like that. We only see about 10 to 15 cases uh, per year in the USA, whereas elsewhere in the world is something like 120,000. You know, and for listeners benefit, you know, if you if you've been pregnant and you've had your first prenatal visit, we always check your rubella status as part of your prenatal care to find out if you're immune to rubella. And if you're non-immune, on your way out of the hospital after you've had the baby, you get the rubella vaccine to protect you and society for the next pregnancy because we don't want non-immune moms contracting the disease for all of the reasons uh, that you stated. And Paul, what's the other part of the rubella story? Yeah, so I, I, I love this kind of thing as we think about the ethical issues and the practical issues of COVID vaccination, vaccinations in children. Because <clears throat> this vaccine is actually one of the vaccines grown in one of these aborted fetal cell lines. So, and it's required for school entry. And it was one of the reasons parents wrote to the Vatican a number of years ago, uh, you know, concerned parent groups like, should we be taking these vaccines? And that's what led to the Pontifical Academy for Life, issuing its letter on the moral reflections on the use of these vaccines grown in aborted fetal cells. And in that uh, letter, we've talked about this before, they, you know, they talk about what we call the remote cooperation with evil, um, that, that we're, we're not wanting the evil act, we're fairly distant from it. And that when you were in that sort of what they call material remote cooperation, if there is a proportional good that outweighs that remote cooperation, that people can receive those vaccines in good conscience. And that pontifical letter actually went so far as to use the example of rubella as one of as the disease to think about in this way that really should have widespread acceptance of the vaccine to, to protect against this congenital rubella syndrome. And as, and as Becca said, that, that benefit is really mostly for other members of society. It might benefit those particularly those girls, uh, you know, that grow up later um, and, and now are also immune. But when you heard Becca's numbers there, 11,000 spontaneous abortions, maybe 20,000 congenital rubella syndrome, put that next to COVID, 
where we've had 770 million people die in you know, a little Wait, over a year and a half. How many? 770,000? I'm sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> 770,000. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 770,000 people uh, die in the United States. So, uh, you know, that that kind of eclipses those numbers uh, for, for a rubella. And that, that was the example used by the Pontifical Academy of Life for a proportionate good for receiving something that actually is much... Uh, that that's actually grown in those cells compared to the mRNA vaccines, which have an even more remote connection to uh, aborted fetal cell lines. Hmm. Well, as time uh, runs out with our guests here, I want to put you on the spot, Becca. I'm going to ask you the question that just strikes fear in the heart of me, and I can see it coming in my patients on their face before it ever comes to the surface. Uh, and that's this: you have children five to eleven. Are you going to vaccinate your children? Uh, they are vaccinated or they've had their first dose. So I actually got them in on the first day. And it's a great question because when parents are asking me, that's usually the question that they want. I mean, yeah. they know that I'm a mom. They know that I have kids this age. So they don't even really want to go through the data or anything like that with me most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, if I tell them, yep, you know, I believe in this and my own kids uh, are vaccinated. For most parents, honestly, that's all they need to hear. Well, that's really helpful. I, I think you're exactly right. That's what our patients who trust us want to know. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's been so much emotion and, and so much stuff that it's hard to lose sight of the fact that we've got really good people in good faith trying to do good research and good science and come up with good answers uh, to guide people. And we certainly appreciate your, uh, certainly appreciate that. Paul. As a last topic, I was just going to say uh, boosters. We could probably do an entire show on boosters, but in the seconds that we have remaining, where are we on boosters and where do you see it going? Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan. I, I think they're important. I, if I had my druthers, this would have been studied as a three-dose vaccine series. And bear in mind, like many, many of our vaccines are two, three, four, even five doses to get a full immune response. And I think what we've really found is that the two-dose vaccine series just it, it, it fades away uh, more than we had hoped um, after about six months. It's still two doses is still looking good at protecting against hospitalization and death, but even that is getting chipped away at a bit in the elderly. And so uh, the, the Israel is way ahead of us on this. And so we've gotten some great data out of Israel. They, they actually have a green pass system. You can't go into a restaurant or a bar or a concert or whatever, unless you're three dose vaccinated. 16 and up and now now they just approved a third dose for 12 and up and the data out of there is it has restored that vaccine efficacy to um 95 and looks really really good there superb thank you so much wealth of information we look forward to having you back again or maybe not because the pandemic will be over but god bless you both <laughs> for being with us here on dr doctor Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this week's medical trivia question, cool drug names. So, the new drug, Molnupiravir, where does it come from? It comes from Molnir, which is the name for Thor's hammer in Norse mythology. And the, the first syllable, Mol, is actually the uh, Icelandic word for flower. So, the, it means, Molnir, to crush or to grind, or the hammer being the crusher or the grinder, which is what the makers of this drug wanted to do to COVID. So there's your answer to the so trivia question. Listeners, if ever you're invited by Dr. McGovern to participate in trivia, I think you <laughs> you know it's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> he rules the trivia roost. Stay away. And Chris, back to you for the top three takeaways from this enlightening episode. Well, hard to pick because there were just so many great points. But if I have to narrow it down, uh, not necessarily in order, I would say the, the first takeaway that COVID is more dangerous than flu, more dangerous of your child being hospitalized, more dangerous of your child dying. Now, they point out it is still a relatively low risk of death in children of COVID. But I love the way that Becca said, don't we want more for our children than just them not dying? Uh, we don't want them to be in the hospital. We don't want them extended illness and out of soccer practice and out of school and quarantine from their friends and grandparents. Uh, we want them to flourish. So I think that's an important takeaway. Equally, maybe more important, is this database uh, issue, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, as we like uh, to call it. It is just a repository of raw data. It is not a study. 
Uh, and so I thought Paul did a great job of talking about, did something come from the vaccine or did it come after the vaccine? So if I, you know, get a headache after the vaccine, uh, I get headaches all the time. But if I call that into the database, it gets listed and someone will read that and think, look, the vaccine causes headaches. That's very complicated science to understand. And we have to be careful not to misinterpret that information in that publicly available database. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, because so much has come up about myocarditis um, and young people who receive the vaccine. Um, and I thought they did a great job of pointing out that the greatest risk of myocarditis is from being infected with COVID-19, not from receiving the virus and uh, the vaccine. Uh, and, and that's not opinion. That's not conjuncture. That's the science. And so uh, by avoiding the vaccine, because we're afraid of this rare complication, the greatest risk is to actually getting the infection and developing myocarditis. That was a great summary, Chris. It's always good having Paul on. I'm glad he introduced us to Becca. We hope to have her on on other subjects in the future. Absolutely. And, and we thank you, our faithful listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning an official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find this episode and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And for those of you that want to dive a little deeper into some of the topics, check out the website bonus links. Just click on the latest button at the top of the main page, including a really amazing graphic uh, regarding this myocarditis issue uh, that Paul supplied from tonight's episode. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.